Good evening. This week on Laser, we discuss bio-inspired 3D laser-printed bone-like structural materials, synthetic diamonds made from cremated human remains, and the very first demonstration of mirrors from laser-trapped polystyrene particles. At the end of the show, we also have our very first iTunes review and a correction. Okay, uh, do you think you're ready? Yeah, I was ready for everything. Okay. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Let's Agree Science and Engineering are Rad. I'm Cameron Copas. I'm a PhD student studying material science at Arizona State University, and I'm doing research in quantum computing right now. Uh, My co-host today is Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Chris Travers. I'm a PhD student at Michigan State University studying organic photovoltaics, uh, coming to you from sunny and warm Lansing, Michigan, where it's definitely not freezing and terrible. Yeah, as opposed to uh, Phoenix, Arizona, where it is freezing and terrible 85 degrees outside right now. Oh, it's horrible. Cold. (laughs) Sweater weather. Okay, maybe it's not actually that warm because it's nighttime now, but it, it was probably 85 during the day today. Yeah, we got... I'm not going to go off topic. It's cold here. Okay, cold. (laughs) So Let's Agree Science and Engineering are Rad is a material science podcast where a couple of us get together today over the magic of the internet, and we discuss some recent papers that have been published uh, that are relevant to the material science field. Uh, So sometimes that's news, and sometimes it's academic papers that... uh, a lot of people might not be reading, but are still pretty interesting, whether you're a graduate student, researcher, or just anybody interested in science. There's only two of us today, because out of the uh, the whole big group, we can only find the two of us free to record. And uh, yeah, so hopefully this episode is for February 26th of 2014. That's barring any editing uh, problems or anything that we have with the recording. There might be an error bar on that. An error plus bar? Or minus, plus or minus three days. Well, it's already taken us, what, four days to try to get this recorded? <laughs> plus or minus four days. <laughs> okay. Just jump straight into the uh, the first paper, then. All right. This actually came from an article that we found on theconversation.com, and the title is Scientists Create Bone-Like Material That Is Lighter Than Water But Stronger Than Steel. And the actual paper to go along with that is titled High Strength Cellular Composites with 3D Microarchitecture. It's published by, published by Jens Bauer at, from the Institute of Applied Materials at the Karlsruhe. Karlsruhe Institute of Technology. Yeah. Sure. That's, that's close enough, right? Yeah, sure. Why not? 
and it was published in uh, PNAS, so Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. So what really drew me to this paper was the fact that they're making basically a, a bio-inspired material that's almost or uh, it's a lot like synthetic bone, which is something that's not really done very often. That's right. So I think um, the whole driving force behind this paper is that um, they mention in the paper that materials are uh, strength of materials is generally uh, inversely proportional to their size and not this not just the size of the object but the size of the smallest uh, mechanical features so to speak so um, they make reference to how uh, small uh, structures in bone make bone uh, especially strong compared to similarly dense materials Yes, so that's what that's where they got the inspiration for this. Uh, they look, they were looking at bones, and I guess they thought, hey, how can we make something with a similar structure that will overall be uh, be really strong? So they're using this structure based on cancellous bone, which is kind of a spongy shape for bone. I think it's what human bones are. Right. Uh, and they are using computers to try to optimize the architecture. I think what they came up with was a handful of different shapes. Some of these look like boxes with a bunch of X's through them. Uh, There's a honeycomb structure. There's one that's just a straight bunch of boxes. And they tested the different strengths of all of these structures. Now, here's a question I had about this. Um, And maybe I just missed this, but how exactly did they come up with with these five specific designs? Uh, Were these just from simulations that they ran? I think these these were good shapes that they ran in simulation. Yeah. And then the one that was just square boxes was like a control almost okay because there's no triangles in there to uh to really stabilize the structure the structure everything's 90 degree angles Mm -hmm. which is uh, not very strong in any sort of compression so what they ended up with was a material that uh, they say as strong as steel but the compressive strength was 280 megapascals uh, and so we actually had, I actually looked at the Ashby chart, which is a something that shows density versus st- strength for a bunch of different materials. And technically, steels do go down to uh, 200 megapascals, but that is the very low end of strength for steels. I'm sorry, they go down to 100 megapascals. Uh, last week we were talking about steels being about 200 gigapascals, which is 200,000 megapascals. So not quite as strong as as they might be uh, making it sound. But it's still a pretty cool thing. It's experimentally valid. Yeah, yeah. If it's stronger than some steel, you can say it's stronger than steel. That's that's true. (laughs) Um, I think the way that they made it is pretty cool, too. That's right. Uh, They uh, used a 3D... Uh, what they do, a 3D dynamic laser, yeah. You might you might want to just explain it. <laughs> okay, sure. It's kind of funny because you were actually on the last show when we talked about 3D printing. Oh, yeah, I was. Yeah. They used 3D laser lithography to build up a structure out of, uh, out of some polymer, and the polymer was called IP-DIP. I guess it's a proprietary polymer based on from this the company that makes the uh, 3D printing lithography, laser lithography system that they have, uh, which is made by a company called NanoScribe. And this this 
printer can print features as small as 150 nanometers, but they ended up doing things that were that were between one and three thousand nanometers size. They said they did three by one and a half micron size structures, so that's three thousand nanometers. Right. And then after they had that 3D printed plastic, they coated it with uh, alumina, which is Al2O3. So it's just it's aluminum. It's just a basic aluminum oxide using a technique called atomic layer deposition, or ALD, which just makes atomically lay atomically thick layers of this uh, Al2O3 on the entire surface of the structure. Um, so they used uh, the aluminum oxide. To try and to try and further increase the strength of these uh, materials, and they found that the optimal thickness—I uh, can't find it in front of me—I think it was around 50 nanometers was the optimal thickness of that aluminum oxide layer. Yeah, they said 50 was the the maximum, but I think the sm- the lowest that they actually tested was 100, wasn't it? I thought they tested up to 100 nanometers. Oh, that's thickness. right. Yes, uh, the optimized is a 10 nanometer, but they oh, tested okay. they tested from 50 to 100. Okay. So the uh, optimum is a really thin coating of this of this alumina, uh, and with that one, they actually got 280 megapascals. And a, the other important thing about this, I guess we should have mentioned that earlier, is the density was only 400 kilograms per cubic meter. So that's actually really light when you compare it to something like water, which is a thousand kilograms per cubic meter. Right. Um, so this thing would seriously float on water. So the, um, one thing that I wanted to add to this paper is, um, so this is really cool stuff, um, but I'm learning, you know, from these, from from this paper and the mirror paper and my work in general, especially, uh, a lot of these papers are uh, proof of concepts, and what I mean by that is that they demonstrate experimentally these uh, cool things on the microscopic level. Um, and if you're reading papers, uh, you're going to see a lot of this, what they call first demonstrations, which is technical speak for proof of concepts. And what that basically means is we have no idea how to scale this up, but here it is in, here is in, the, here, here it is in the laboratory. Yeah, that is sort of what they were doing. I don't think that that's their fault yet. I think the technology that's uh, needed to make this something commercially viable or something we, re- we use all the time is in the 3D printing world. Right. I, I don't mean to diminish the importance of this paper. It's a it's a great first start. Um, I'm just saying that um, when people when you're coming when people in general are coming across papers and they may scoff at the fact that oh you well, you just you just did this on the scale of microns. Um, a lot of science. This is how a lot of science starts out. That's the point I wanted to drive home. Okay. Yeah. That is pretty important. So yeah, the, this 3D printer that they have it can print these really really tiny structures. But that also means that it can't print very large structures. <laughs> in the, the printer, the largest thing it can print is about a centimeter, maybe even less than that. Right. Uh, and these look like they're the full structures that they made were about 40 microns, which is about a tenth the size of a human hair. Yep, that's yeah, it. Yeah, about the tenth of the size, size of a human hair, uh, about the tenth the diameter of a human hair. I'm sorry. So these are pretty small, but it's it's in the limit. The real limitation is in that that 3D printer. So as this uh, and just printing something larger takes so much more time. So as this technology advances, we'll I'm sure we'll be able to see things printed larger and larger and larger. Uh, but at first, you have to test out the very small ones to see if it'll even work at all. 
I think um, something that this could be applied to in the somewhat near future until they figure out how to scale this up to, um, you know, I don't know, meters in size uh, would be to manufacture small but extremely critical mechanical components um, for whatever you can think of. So you can you can almost just about do that now, uh, given what they did here. You could build a bridge for fleas. You could build a bridge for fleas. Yeah, that'd be. Although they could probably just jump the gap anyway, so whatever. You build a long bridge for. Oh wait, they can jump pretty long. <laughs> they could, yeah, they could jump pretty far. <laughs> probably much further than uh, than would be useful with this current technology. I don't know. I, I like to think about the like the total, the the endpoint of of the future of this. So when when you're building what buildings that are uh, that would float on water, right? Because the density of the structure material is so low. Or since it's based on bones and it's so light and might be stronger than bones, I don't actually know, uh, maybe you could actually replace your bones with it. How That's cool right. would that be? We can make Wolverine. Not quite yeah. as cool, but... I, I don't I don't know. Would, would you replace your bones with this like ceramic material that was stronger than bones? If uh, it were stronger than I... I would not, but not not because I'm afraid of the material. I just don't, wouldn't want to go into that kind of surgery. <laughs> okay. That's pretty reasonable. <laughs> so what else do you think you could do with something like this, Chris? Um, build bones for fleas. <laughs> you could make indestructible fleas with this. You, potentially. potentially. What about indestructible bees? Ooh. I don't even know about that. Why would you need an indestructible bee? Um, to take over the world. Okay, I see it. Probably use a bee army. Yeah, why not? Yeah, you, need, you need to train them first. That's that's going to be the hard part. This part's already figured out. So yeah, the coolest, basically the coolest thing about this paper is that I, I've seen a lot of people write about, oh, they make a bone-inspired material that's so light and strong. But what's crazy to me is that this was actually 3D printed with lasers. Lasers are always cool. Lasers are always cool. I mean, this is the laser podcast, so uh, <laughs> anytime we see something cool about lasers, we have to point it out. I guess I didn't really go into how laser lithography printing works. So for that, what they do is they they have this like bed of material. Actually, this is how I believe it works. This is how laser center 3D printing works. So they have like a bed of these really small particles of material, and you would just shoot the laser in the pattern that you want, and then put another layer of powder on, and then shoot the laser again, and it only melts the area that that you want to build into your material Uh, that allows you to make really complicated structures and all sorts of stuff and then you can uh, go take them into the uh, ald chamber and coat them in the alumina like they did here Uh, and that's a really slow complicated procedure but you can do it on large areas and it's very uh, uniform i'm curious um to see so i'm i'm looking at the article right now and it says that uh, the slide containing the polymer is moved and uh, it's it's just moved in the way that the laser, which remains stationary, um, goes through at the required points. Um, So I'm wondering 
it seems this looks like a two-dimensional process, but these are obviously three-dimensional structures. Um, I'm not really sure how they do that based on that explanation. It, it, well, it's like the stage with the with the polymers would move down a little bit every time. Okay. And then you put another layer on top. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Does that makes sense. So that yeah. the laser isn't really moving around that all that much. Uh, or the laser could be moving up, one of the two. So you're printing a bunch of 2D layers, and then it adds up to a 3D structure. Right, okay. Yeah. See any problems with this? Uh, I don't think so. Other than the size limitations? Yeah, that was my thing. That's just the size limitation there. I think the biggest, well, the biggest thing that I notice is that their their absolute strongest structure was this uh, honeycomb structure, which you see already a lot in uh, cardboards and plastic composite materials or fiberglass composite materials. Right. It's like used in the floors of airplanes and in cardboard. So that's only strong in one direction. So you push it in the other direction and it easily bends and breaks. Mm-hmm. So for something like that, you'd have to know exactly the direction that the force is going to be loaded in or that, that your material is going to be have any stress on it in. Right. So, um, they, well, if you know if you know exactly how the part's going to be used, then, they, then the honeycomb is great. Otherwise, it uh, looks like you'd have to use one of those, one of the cubic or tri- triangle-based parts. Yeah, or this other hexagonal one that has, like, hexagonal layers rotated a little bit. Right. Instead of just a honeycomb structure. But overall, it's pretty cool. Now, they show some really neat uh, micrograph pictures of the failure modes. When they, they, what they actually did was they to get the strength, they put these under a microscope and kind of crushed them with something. It smushed. Yeah. And so some of the, the pictures of, uh, of these structures crushing are really neat. We'll have that in the, in the show notes, actually. We'll have the original structures under the microscope and then the... Uh, Pictures of the collapsed ones, also. Now they also mentioned that uh, they tried to bend them, didn't they? Um, I'm wondering how they actually managed to do that, given that they're so small. They showed they showed the way that they they smushed them. Um, not sure how they bent them though. Maybe they just added a shear instead of a straight down force. Okay. I'm not sure. I don't remember that part of the method section, and I'm scrolling through to look for it. And don't really see it. All right. All right. Earlier we talked about uh, since this is a bone replacement, maybe somebody might end up uh, replacing their bones with it, and then uh, you'd have a bunch of leftover bones with nothing, nothing to do with them, except for making diamonds. Yeah, you could burn them and turn them into diamonds, which is something that we will uh, talk about in the next sex- segment. It's a good segue there. I thought so. Yeah. <laughs> Baby bone. Are you cold? Are you cold? Gather up your scattered toes And I will hold them close Baby bones, are you cold? Are you cold? Baby bones A company out of, um, let me see, let me get all this right so the Swiss company Algordanza, which I say with an Italian flourish, 
Um, so what they do is they take a cremated human remains and put high heat and pressure onto them, similar to what happens uh, deep inside the earth, and that compresses the ash into diamonds. Um, so this, uh, they do this uh, commercially. Um, anybody can take their dead relative and pay a couple thousand, or, uh, between $5,000 and $22,000, and uh, have their dead relative turned into diamonds. Yeah. So that's kind of creepy, but also kind of cool at the same time. Yeah, if you're into that. If you're into that. I think the point, the, the cool part about it is, isn't that you would use a dead person as diamonds, but that you're actually growing synthetic diamonds. Right. Which, again, is nothing new. I mean, this has been around for a while. I think even this commercial service has been around for a while. It's just that there was a, a short piece about this company on the NPR Weekend Edition uh, recently. Um, one of the interesting, th- one of the things that that interested me about this was that uh, most of the diamonds that are made out of human cremains are come out blue. That's right, and that's they say it's due to the boron content in the bones. Yeah. Um, another th- another thing is that um, the the CEO of this company says, uh, Mr. I don't get his name, Ronaldo Willie uh, says. I hope I pronounced that right. I hope there's not some crazy Swedish version of the pronunciation. <laughs> um, yeah, he says that almost everyone comes, almost every person's diamonds uh, come out as different colors. And um, he talked about it on the actual audio interview with NPR, uh, where sometimes they come, the diamonds come out white. And this happened at least on one occasion with somebody who was who had died of cancer and was under intense chemotherapy, and um, apparently. I know very little about chemotherapy, but apparently that affects the boron concentration in bones. Yeah, so, so it makes them... Right, and it makes them white. Which is kind of cool. And uh, so the, the boron thing is, is very similar to the way that you have uh, sapphires and rubies and, and emeralds. Uh, wait, I think emeralds. Is emerald one of those? No, emerald is not. All right. Uh, the thing that's kind of cool about the blue is, or the, the, the boron is that... Uh, the way that it's colored is very similar to the way that sapphires and rubies and uh, yeah, sapphires and rubies are colored. Uh, so this is actually another tie-in to the to the previous story, where sapphire is just Al2O3. It's crystalline Al2O3. Uh, the the blue color of a sapphire actually comes from titanium and iron impurities in the aluminum oxide. Uh, just very small trace amounts of titanium and iron. And then the very small trace amounts of chromium will turn Al203 into a ruby, make it red. And if it has a vanadium, it'll be sort of green. Um, so that that's all kind of cool. So I'm wondering that I, I expect that they'd be able to do the same thing with these. If you just added a little bit of these other elements, you could kind of choose the color of, of diamond that comes out of this, uh, this synthetic process. Yeah, you could um, you could customize, I guess, your uh, dead relative diamonds that way. Although um, I have to say there that wouldn't would you kind of get closer to uh, other just manufactured diamonds that way though? If you're just adding stuff to your adding stuff to the ashes to control the color. Okay, so that's true. Well, then I, I suppose what you could do is uh, you could take your entire life just somehow introducing more of these these trace elements to your body and hope that your bones absorb them. And 
<laughs> probably poison yourself, but then you'd get your you'd get made into a diamond even faster. There you go. Right? If if that's what you want done with your body, that's something that uh, I suppose you could theoretically do. I, this makes me think of uh, of the stereotypical obscenely rich uh, lady who is uh, she's she has a lust for a diamond. She has to have all the jewels and the diamonds, and the best thing ever would be for her to turn herself into diamonds. So she would totally do that. <laughs> is is this a an actual lady? No, this is uh, a com. This is a this is a gradient of movies and TV shows and cartoons. Oh, okay. okay, so it's just like a trope. Right. Yeah. Okay. So these, I suppose, since we're a material science podcast, we should actually talk about the material science of these uh, synthetic diamonds. <laughs> okay. Well, I think first of all, synthetic diamonds are not cubic zirconium. That's that's a totally different material. Um, it's actually more stable than diamond at room temperature. But we're not going to get into that. Uh, not not harder, but more stable. Uh, <laughs> so these are actual real diamonds. They're they're exactly the same chemically as the ones that we mine out of the ground uh, in horrible human rights violation conditions and uh, De Beers and all that kind of stuff. Which we're not going to get into because this is not a politics podcast. Right. Material science. Material science. Uh, we've tried the politics. <laughs> the the synthetic diamond process uh, was actually developed by GE in nineteen in the nineteen fifties. And the first process for this was the same one that this company is, is using today. It's called HPHT. So it stands for high pressure, high temperature where they literally just take a whole bunch of or they take a bunch of this carbon and compress it to really really at with a really really high pressure and really really high temperature and uh they have a little or and then it it will uh, compress into a diamond uh from this you can actually look at the the phase diagram of carbon to find out where where it should form and there's there's two regions. If you look around, well, what what they do is they're using around 1,260 degrees Celsius and 5,008. I'm sorry, and 58,000 bar of pressure. That that is uh, definitely in the diamond region of the phase diagram. It is, but it's in the region for uh, catalytic graphene to diamond transition. So it's not just going to spontaneously turn into a diamond. You actually need something there to uh, to help it along. You need a, ca- a catalyst, maybe a uh, a seed or something else like that. You have to go much further up in temperature and pressure in order to get the direct graphite to diamond transition. That starts the lowest temperature is about 3,200 degrees Kelvin. So about 3,000 degrees Celsius, and the minimum pressure for that is closer to 100,000 bar. Uh, one bar is practically an atmosphere. Yeah. It's a 0.98 atmosphere. Okay, so one bar is about an atmosphere, so you yeah. need 100,000 atmospheres and 3,000 degrees Celsius, uh, which is really high pressure, really high temperature, just to get this graphite to turn into a diamond without any sort of help. Um uh, and that's really hard to do since the 
that's that's pretty close to the melting temperature of most of the materials that you'll be using in your in your synthesis chamber. Uh-huh. And really high pressures are hard just because that's hard to make. It's just hard to do. So they're de- they're definitely doing this in the uh, the seed crystal or the catalyst region. For this, so they probably put a tiny little diamond inside the chamber, along with uh, with the carbon source, which is the the cremated remains, mm-hmm. and then heat it up and squeeze it. <laughs> yeah, it's very hard to do, and from from our basic material science, it is a very hard material. Har oh, har 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 har. That's, that's funny. Yeah, diamond is very hard. Uh, I guess we could, we can talk about the other method, a little bit more modern. Came, uh, was uh, patented in the 90s, 1996, by Apollo Diamond. And this is actually a very common technique used for growing a lot of single crystal materials nowadays in the material science world. Um, and it's called CVD, which stands for Chemical Vapor Deposition. So this is the more modern way of growing diamonds, uh, or of growing a lot of synthetic diamonds. And what this does is this actually uses a much lower pressure and a lower temperature, so it's much easier to do. And what it, the way you do it is you start with some sort of seed or a substrate to grow it on. So this you would need definitely a tiny little diamond inside. And then you would flow through, you would vaporize certain things and flow them over the the substrate or the catalyst site uh, back and forth and slowly grow your diamond. Uh, so it's very slow, but it's able to grow in large areas. You can more easily dope it by adding in some other other materials. Um, you could add nitrogen to give it a yellow color, boron to give it a blue color. We already talked about that. Or if you irradiate the diamond while you're making it, uh, it'll actually turn green. I don't know... I couldn't really find a lot of information about making green diamonds, but it's apparently uh, has to do with being irradiated during the uh, the growth. Now, how much you say this process is really slow? How slow are we talking about here? CVD or what? Um, or the other the this company's really process? Well, let's compare both. I don't know. Oh. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I guess it doesn't say, does it? The the company says that. Uh, they won't. They can't grow larger than one carat, just because that's as long as they're willing to spend the time in their chamber. Uh, theoretically, you could keep growing it until it was too big to fit the chamber, but this high pressure, high temperature method takes a long time, and they have other customers. So if they just if they want to make enough money, they're going to have to uh, <laughs> to sell their product to more than one customer. Mm-hmm. So they won't go above one carat, and they can do. Uh, that up with only 500 grams of the cremains. So you don't really have to send your entire urn of cremated remains to them, which is also kind of nice. Yeah, and in fact, you know, if you really wanted to, you could you could cut off your toe and have it turn into a diamond. <laughs> that's that's pretty dark. But if, I suppose if you really if you really wanted to. Okay. Do we have anything else to say about this? Nope. All right. Diamonds can also be shiny. You know what else is shiny? Mirrors. Uh, that's that's great. All right, let's do that. It's like the worst transition ever. Let's keep it. Okay, if you say so. To anyone but myself, you bring out something in me that I can't see. I don't mind living. 
like Chris said before the break, something that is something that's very shiny and reflective, uh, similar to Diamond. It's jewelry and cartoons that's reflective and shiny. You see all the little animated twinkles. Yeah, sure. Anyway, what we're talking about in this next story is a uh, something I read in an article on NewScientist.com, and the title of the article was "Laser Light Makes Ultra Light." mirror out of tiny beads and that refers to a paper that was published in PhysRev letters in uh, the middle of january 2014 titled optical mirror from laser trapped mesoscopic particles or mesoscopic let's go with mesoscopic okay uh, the author of this was thomas gerzegorzak gerzegorzak Gerzegorzak, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. So uh, if you're listening to this podcast, Thomas, um, you should send us an email and explain to us how to pronounce your last name. And I'm sorry I butchered it. <laughs> anyway, well, this is related to the very first topic also in that it uses lasers to make something out of very tiny pieces. Except in this case, they are using a laser to move beads around polystyrene beads around and then they want to make that into a mirror chris what do you know about optically trapping particles um okay so when i explained that i have a very limited knowledge of mirrors i was actually referring to um, a mirror that my advisor made in one of his on one of his previous papers on transparent uh opvs and uh sure if you want me to segue into that i mean i can tell you how he made the mirror at least is the mirror thing interesting? Um, I think it is. Why don't you say it then? All right. Well, uh, so back in 2011, my advisor, uh, Dr. Richard Luntz, um, he wrote a paper. He wrote an interesting paper on transparent organic photovoltaic devices. Um, and basically, to very, very, very briefly summarize the paper, um, he compares the efficiencies of opaque devices with silver cathodes to transparent ones with uh, indium tenoxide cathodes. And one of the major pitfalls from in going from opaque to transparent is that the silver cathodes actually reflect some of the some of the incident light back through the active layers, so they allow that light another opportunity to be reabsorbed. So that increases the photocurrent and therefore the efficiency, and that advantage is lost when you go to ITO. Uh, one way that my advisor found to uh, get some of that advantage back. Was to make was to fabricate what's called a distributed Bragg reflector, and so what he the way he does this is uh, he grows alternating layers of titanium oxide and silicon oxide um, onto a quartz substrate um, with he says in the paper with with layer with layer thicknesses selected to form a stop band centered at around uh, 800 nanometers, meaning that uh, this is a this is a mirror that will reflect um, lights with a reflection peak centered at around 800 nanometers. So once he once he, he uses a, an index matching fluid to essentially glue these mirrors on top of, directly on top of his devices so that uh, now that that light that would otherwise just go right through without being absorbed would be reflected back through the active layers and have another chance to be absorbed. Okay, cool. So that's actually, I heard a lot about that at the uh, the recent conference that I went to last week. They were talking about you need to put a mirror at the back of your solar cells in order to yeah get a second chance to absorb any light that wasn't absorbed the first time. Mm-hmm. Which conference so, are you at? Uh, the Lawrence conference. Oh, okay. 
it was really interesting. It's kind of funny though that there were a few paper or a few presentations on that same topic. Mm-hmm. So that is not really the application for these mirrors, but uh, mirrors are always cool, right? Yeah. So why not leave that in? Uh, these specific mirrors are something that they are hoping will apply to space telescopes in the future. So what, what they did was they they used laser tweezers, which we briefly touched on in a, in a previous episode. Um, and the way this works is to, to trap these optical particles, to trap these uh, polystyrene beads. And usually they're not reflective, but when you get a bunch of them together in a, in a really f- close together in a flat surface, they can reflect some light. Um, so the way the laser optical trapping works is that you have two different lasers, two different parabolic lasers, and they're shining in this area. And because there's two different lasers, they will create an interference pattern with each other. So this gets into quantum mechanics, but essentially you can think about there are areas where there is light and where there is no laser light. And so what's going to happen is that these the areas where there is light are going to be higher energy. So these particles are going to want to basically fall into the troughs where there are, is no light. So where there's destructive interference and then they can't, they don't have enough energy to jump back out over the light. So usually you don't think of lasers as being able to, or light as being able to move anything, but in, in this case, uh, they can. And they, they keep very small particles, uh, trapped. So that's how this laser trapping works. Then they have these very small beads that are three micrometer size beads, and they're using a green lasers for this. Um, and these polystyrene beads are very small, very light. They only made a very small 35, or I'm sorry, they made a very small mirror just to test this out, and they shone some light on it to reflect it and see if they could see anything. This is, again, like the first paper, just a very basic proof of concept. And they were able to read the number 8 that was... They shone a flashlight through the number 8 on a ruler, and it bounced back, and they could read it. Here's something I'm kind of hung up about. That's that's pretty cool, but um, I'm looking at one of the figures in the paper where they actually show... They, they show three images, uh, one with the beta ray present, another without the beta ray, and one with the difference between the two. And so... Um, I'm taking the beta rate to, to mean the beads of polystyrene uh, and the, that are forming the mirror. So it seems like you, you're able to see the number rate perfectly well without the beta ray. So um, exactly how much is how much is this helping in the first place? Or am I completely missing the point here? Um, well, the the point is that like the the what right now because they're just doing this as a test, they're actually using a glass slide in the back. So these are polystyrene beads against a glass slide, and then the laser's oh, just okay. holding them there. So the point is that normally you wouldn't think of the beads as being reflective at all, but when they were there, you could still see that the letter 8, or the, the number 8. Um, they're also cheating a little bit by using water. So these are beads in water against a glass slide. And even the the head researcher admits that this is cheating a little bit, but it's a good, it's an interesting test. Uh, they use these the water to help stabilize the beads a little bit and to help keep them cool. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. So it's just demonstrating that the beads do not absorb 
the lights. Uh, they reflect it. Yeah, okay. they, they actually do reflect it. So eventually what they want to do is uh, they foresee this potential application of using laser-trapped light, sorry, laser-trapped particles to make a mirror for a giant space telescope. 35 meters in diameter, 100 nanometers thick, and would weigh an entire 100 grams. Yeah, so that would be really, really awesome. Um, because you have to look at things like like the current telescopes we have up there. So the problem with, with space telescopes is right now the mirror. Um, we can't get a large enough mirror up into space because it costs something like yeah, so there's some uh, approximation that says it costs about $10,000 per kilogram to send something into space. Uh, that's based on the the current, or probably some old uh, launch cost. And that's kind of a lot. So, and, so the, the biggest problem is that with our telescope's resolution is the, the size of the mirror, so how much light we can actually collect. So the most recent telescope that we're sending up, oh, the other the other problem is that we can't send up even if we want a really large mirror, we can't send up a really large mirror all in one piece. Um, we can't even make a really large mirror all in one piece. That's I think, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so with the James Webb Space Telescope, uh, they're they're sending up a six and a half meter uh, diameter mirror uh, made of eighteen interlocking se- segments. So um, see the articles the. Yeah, the article says uh, to finish the launch vehicle, the mirror itself will have to be folded up and then unfolded in space. So um, one thing that I want to point out here is, uh, like we were saying, like we said a few times already, this is just this uh, these, this polystyrene mirror uh, study is just a proof of concept. Um, it's up to the engineers of the future. It could be you who discovers uh, the logistics and how to work them out in uh, sending um, such a large thin and I'm sure very delicate mirror to a faraway planet. Yeah, so well, that's what the, the kind of the point of the pro, this paper, is that we won't have to worry about a delicate mirror or a large mirror, because you send up a big bag of polystyrene beads that don't weigh anything, and then a couple of, a bunch of lasers to keep them trapped where they are, and then there you have your, your big mirror, which would be really cool. Uh, so yeah, one of the other, like you mentioned that the James Webb has all these 18 hexagonal mirrors, a lot of the mass of the James Webb telescope is the computers that and the motors that have to move the mirrors constantly because all of those mirrors have to be in a perfect alignment. So these motors are constantly adjusting for any shift in in between the spacing, and that's even more complicated because the whole thing has to fold up into the rocket when we launch it into space the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the Hubble might be one mirror. And I think it was made at the University of Arizona. I know that they have the largest uh, mirror furnace in the world, and that one is only about four, maybe four and a half meter diameter furnace. Um, so basically, nobody can make a large a mirror larger than what we already have, unless you use these these multiple pieces, and then you have to worry about the keeping them all aligned. So with this optical mirror, you could theoretically take a bunch of lasers and more easily keep track of exactly where everything needs to stay um, since the interference patterns would not let these move and even if something hit it hit it it would basically be self-healing since everything would just fall back into that minimum energy state 
so it's almost it's a self-healing mirror that would basically weigh nothing. Um, currently, they did not do this with very many beads. This they had to look at it under under a microscope, I believe. Um, I think they used 100, uh, 150 beads. Okay, so they used 150 beads, and each of them were only three uh, micrometers in diameter. Very small. But right. it is an interesting, again, an interesting proof of concept. I think that's kind of a theme on this show, huh? Yeah. <laughs> it's a theme of science in general. A lot, Again, a lot of papers you're going to find out there are proofs of concept, heavily disguised as first demonstrations. Yes, yeah. I guess that's what we're, in, we're into, though. I mean, that's, that's the research field. It's always going to be, oh, this might be cool in 20 years. Yep, exactly. But we think it's cool now. <laughs> well... Um, unless we're going to talk about Twitch plays Pokemon, I don't know uh, what else there is to talk about this week. I just saw that uh, one of my buddies showed that to me last week. <laughs> that is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, it might it might be one of the stupidest things ever. But the fact that they even made it out of Pallet Town is nothing short of miraculous. <laughs> You just have to hope that like people are actually playing it on purpose and not just randomly selecting buttons. I'm sure if you wrote a program to randomly do it, it would take a lot longer to actually get anywhere. Yeah, that's true. But these are people actually trying to do something on purpose, so yeah. Unless 4chan gets wind of it. Unless what? Oh, I'm sure that they're the ones who started it. Oh, really? I don't know. Uh. I'm sure it's those people. <laughs> those people yeah right <laughs> okay well I guess that's all we have to say for the, for this week um, start to wrap this up so thank you for listening to the laser podcast um, actually one thing that we did get this week is uh, we had a couple of comments alright the comments let me open up iTunes I'm gonna read some reviews yeah So what you can do is you can actually leave us a review on iTunes, and that will help more people find the podcast, because iTunes displays the podcasts to new people based on their rating and their reviews. Uh, so we actually got a review this week, and Chris, or in the recent past, and Chris is going to read that. All right, hang on, let me get to the, to the thing. All right. Da, da, da. Laser podcast and ratings and reviews. Here we go. So this guy gave us five stars. Uh, should we say his name? Sure. Her name, his or her name. Uh, just put anything. Wrote definitely worth a listen. If you are into science or engineering or even an interested person like me, 
you will love the podcast. It's especially refreshing to hear some younger people in the science field speak on engineering and material science. Being an engineering student myself, the topics on the podcast definitely get me inspired, open, and interested in a wide variety of materials and science in general. Keep up the good work, guys. There are loyal listeners subscribed. Smiley face. All right, great. Well, thank you to Just Put Anything for leaving that. We, we also have a correction for our last week's episode 11. Uh, for the story when we talked about the, the nanocrystalline cellulose, Chad Jones from the Collapsed Wave Function podcast pointed out on Twitter that density functional theory is not a simulation, but it's a model. So a model is something that's actually based on fundamental principles. So these are things that are actually calculated. So it, it's not just an approximation that gets better the longer you let it run. I also wanted to, or he also pointed out that it might be a little confusing for everybody to uh, recognize all the voices on this podcast. I think we've had 10 different voices, so nine of those were co-hosts, and uh, yeah, that's that's kind of complicated. I mean, Chris is joining me today. Chris, uh, Hi, this I'm is Chris. Your, yeah, yeah, this is, <laughs> this is your third show, is that right? Third show. Third show. You were on episode, what, 9, 10, and 12, probably? Um, uh, let me see. I, I think I, I think that's right. You were on the the special edition, uh, special drunk edition, and the perovskite edition, and this one. All right. So we're a collective of material scientists, and uh, we just have a bunch of topics. And whoever is interested in talking about a certain the topics that we're going to do comes on and uh, chats with us for the week, right? That's right. That's exactly it. Yeah. So we are basically the anarchist collective Chumbawamba, but with science instead of anarchy and punk music. Do you mind if I submit an alternate ex- explanation? Sure. Uh, so what I like to say to people who are in my group and in my group of friends here at MSU, um, we are a very diverse group of generally material science. Actually, I think we're all material scientists. Uh, but we're a very diverse group of material scientists because material science is a very broad discipline. And we wanted to talk about a very, very broad range of scientific research, anything that's exciting. And uh, in these podcasts, we try to focus on uh, topics that are of high interest and um, relevance to the co-host's research, which is why we like to rotate hosts so much. I don't know if that's necessarily true, though. That kind of makes us sound like we actually know what we're talking about, which is not the case at all. (laughs) In general, none of us have ever done any research in what we're talking about. Like today, none of us have ever done any of these three subjects. But we read read the papers, and we have some background information, and uh, hopefully we are, are coherent. Hopefully. Hopefully. All right, so I think that's enough for this week. Uh, Thank you for listening to Laser. Again, I already said it, but please leave us a rating or review on iTunes. Um, If you want to send us an email, you can email contact at laserpodcast.com. You can leave a comment on the website, which is just laserpodcast.com. Get us on Twitter. We are at laserpodcast, or like us on Facebook or Google+. Just search for Laser Podcast on, on Google Plus or Facebook, and I'm sure we're up there. We're on there somewhere. Yeah, we are definitely on there. Or if you're a scientist who wants to join the show, uh, you send us an email, or if you have any topics that you want us to talk about, 
Again, contact us through any of those methods, and we will uh, put it in the queue for a future show. Other than that, I, again, thank you for listening, and uh, good night. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. This has been The Laser Podcast, or Let's Agree Science and Engineering are Rad. Show notes are available on the website at laserpodcast.com. You can send us an email, contact at laserpodcast.com. Contact us on Twitter at laserpodcast, or find us on Facebook or Google+. You can leave a rating on iTunes or listen to us on Stitcher. The intro music is Open from the band Crying, and the outro music is Dreams Are Maps from The Wild. You can find more information about the show, links to all the stories we talk about, in the show notes on the website. Thanks. Bye. Chris, how you doing? Pretty good. Can you hear me all right? Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, Skype call recorder wants me to make sure that this recording this call is legal and that all involved parties agree with it. I agree. All right. Oh, Dash is in front of the microphone. Dash, move your butt. <laughs> Cats love microphones. I'm half expecting Olive to come up on my lap and start meowing because she's been doing that all night. <laughs> yep, he's wa- oh yeah, he's rubbing his tail on my face. Okay, Dash. <laughs> yes, good boys, good kitties. Uh, you need attention. You need attention. <laughs> oh, now he's mad at me. Okay. No, that's my headphones. Nope, not a toy. <laughs> I need to see my notebook, Dash. I do, I need my notebook. Will you please move? Oh, thank you for letting me pick you up, kitty cats. Okay, good boys. <laughs> <laughs> do you know anything about, like, laser tweezers? No. Oh, darn, neither do I. I was hoping you did. Yeah, sorry.